0: HSD are experts in delivering tech solutions to the VET sector, working with clients such as the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, ASQA and the VRQA. HSD understand the complexities of VET, its systems and data. We specialize in systems integration, customer relationship management systems, Microsoft platforms and migrating organizations to the cloud. So whether you're looking for advice on integrating your systems, meeting your data reporting requirements or looking to gain insights into your stakeholders, HSD are here to help. Visit hsd.com.au or follow us on LinkedIn. From Clare Field and Associates, I'm Clare, and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now? What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. Episode 54, and this week I sat down to chat with Stephen Connolly, Vice President, Business Development at Adventus.io, an edtech company in the international student recruitment space. We recorded this as the AIEC annual conference was coming to an end, and as the Victorian government lodged their plans for the return of international students. Many of the sessions at the conference gave me cause for optimism for the sector. Notably, the discussions experts and practitioners had about how they were intending to expand their offerings and delivery locations. While the drivers behind those changes were, to some degree, circumstance and financial, for many, it was the success of the strategies they had deployed during COVID, which they were keen to continue and expand in the future. And that included specifically the offshore international study hubs, which many providers have instituted or worked with their partners on and which have been very effective. The chance for students to undertake some study online at home prior to coming to Australia was also rated highly by some students and parents and had led to a change in perceptions amongst students, parents, governments and even employers in the region when it comes to seeing online learning as a quality option. These are really important positive shifts for the Australian international education sector. Obviously, welcoming students back to their classes here in Australia is the immediate priority. And I note some reporting in the media today that perhaps the Commonwealth Government should have a defined plan in place for the return of international students. I don't think it's helpful to get into a who should be doing more to welcome back students debate when it's pretty clear it takes cooperation from all governments to get the right measures in place for students to return. All I would say is that I'm optimistic that most jurisdictions look like they will have very strong numbers of international students back on campus next year, with the possible exception of Western Australia. For those of you in jurisdictions that have plans in place for the return of international students, and I'm looking at you, New South Wales, South Australia and the ACT and Victoria very soon, then make sure you check out the Shine With Australia campaign and collateral materials on the Austrade website. It's designed to help all providers send a strong, clear message that our borders are reopening and students are warmly welcomed. And now against that backdrop, settle in and have a listen to Stephen's observations about what's happening now in the sector and what we might see in the next few years. Stephen has a wealth of experience in a range of different roles in the sector, and it was great to get his insights. It's a pleasure to be joined by Stephen Connolly, who is the Vice President Business Development at Adventist.io. And Stephen, it's been ages since we virtually sat down and had a chat, let alone a face-to-face one. So thank you for making the time. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. I've known you for a while, but you've got a really interesting history in the sector and not everybody might necessarily know that. So fill us in. Who are you and what are you currently doing?
1: Well, just because it's you and me chatting and nobody else listening, I I don't mind admitting I've been in the sector for more than 30 years. Um, if you ever see anything written about me, I generally tend to stick to 25 because 30 sounds a bit long. But um, my first job was teaching English to the middle management Staff that Daimaru Corporation sent to Australia, sent to Melbourne in the 1980s to set up Daimaru Shopping Centre at Melbourne Central. And I was teaching the 10 execs, I think, that they sent out uh, at the time. Uh, Poor unsuspecting guys, because my first job um, as an English language teacher, that's where I started. And I worked um, at Monash and RMIT language centres for five years, and then I went overseas to run RMIT's twinning programs at Metropolitan College in Malaysia for four years, which was fantastic, a fantastic job. I still don't think I was qualified for it, to be honest, when I started, but it was great experience. We love Malaysia, fantastic country. Uh, our daughter was born there. Um, and that's probably ultimately why we came home because just with our family and stuff, it became a little bit too difficult, so we came back. And then I spent 15 years working in universities, international offices, Trobe, Swinburne and RMIT. 2013, I think I went out on my own and set up um, Global Ed Services, uh, and that's still a going concern. I've got other people in the company that uh, do stuff, um, independent consulting. Um, we run I graduates um, work in Australia. The um, International Student Barometer we've just completed um, the latest uh, round of that um, benchmarking for EYDF, uh, and. Yes, I've uh, recently joined uh, Adventist.io in um, in that business development role that you described. Great.
0: So, uh, briefly, do you want to just tease out a bit about Adventist.io, what it is and what you're doing there? And then I've got a specific question that I wanted to ask you about your B two B kind of model and approach. But, but what is yeah. Adventist.io?
1: Well, it's an tech company. Um, it's a Marketplace essentially, it's a platform that operates as a marketplace with uh, agents on one side, institutions on the other, and students trying to find uh, overseas study opportunities. So it's uh, essentially students from anywhere to anywhere. Um, We're not quite everywhere yet. Uh, I think we're now in nine or 10 countries in South Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, We'll be in 20 countries by the end of the year. And we send all the major destinations. Assuming their borders are open, which they're <laughs> not all at the moment, um, so it's it's yeah it's been very exciting. It's a startup essentially. Um, I'll talk about the origins when you ask me about the B two B model. But um, there's about four thousand agents on one side, about thirteen hundred institutions on the other. Um, so it's become substantial fairly quickly.
0: Great. Um, so always interested in ed tech and obviously in international education. So we've touched on it. You've chosen, I mean, the aim is to help students find the right institution, you know, that's going to meet yeah. their needs, but mm-hmm. you haven't, you've, you, the, you know, the company chooses not to do the B2C. It's actually helping agents find institutions that in turn meet the needs of the students. So can you talk us through that thinking?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, the origins of Adventist.io are actually um, Adventist Education, the Sri Lankan Student recruitment Agency, which was set up eight or nine years ago. So that was B2C. And the vestiges of that uh, company is still in the organisation. But if you consider what it takes to grow um, and expand in a B2C model, um I think what's taken IDP 50 years to become a um, $9 billion country and I don't know how many people have working for them. Uh, and you're taking on all of the agents directly in a 2 model if you if you wish to grow. So um, the wicked problem, I guess, that Adventist.io, which is sort of the transformation of Adventist into a, an edtech company, um, was to give students more choice the issue being that agents have generally a small number of institutions that they uh, service and, you know, a, an agent suite of institutions might not necessarily have the study option for every student that the agent is trying to help. So the idea is to give agents choice and through the agents to give students choice. And that's, in fact... In terms of the value proposition for agents, what what they're most interested in is the institutional course inventory that we have, because it does give you know students ridiculous choice. We've got seventy thousand study programs on the platform. It's a lot of study options for students. So um, then, if you if you if you take the edtech approach and a B two B model, it still requires a lot of inputs. Um, to grow and expand and to move into different countries, but nothing like doing it at a B2C level. Um, so, the, you know, don't have the same kind of investment in either staff or bricks and mortar. The, the investment goes into the technology and making it easy and compelling for agents to work with us. Um, so that's, uh, I think, the probably the primary reason why it's B2B rather than B2C. Um, I think B2C would be just a a monster you couldn't grapple to the ground um, at the scale that uh, we're envisaging for the company.
0: Fantastic. And, I I mean, I think giving agents more choice and the fact that you've talked about the 70,000 potential options that their students can tap into um, is phenomenal Uh, and I was listening to Minister Tudge speaking at the AIEC conference this morning and of course uh, Mm -hmm. it's not news to anybody more choice different courses in fact uh, that you know he's looking for international students to study while they're here and even suggesting uh, for the first time I heard him say considering incentives to help students make different study choices so that will be interesting to see Uh, what that might look like and and how that plays out. So talking about agents, there's been some calls recently here in Australia for more regulation of onshore international agents. Uh, Some haven't necessarily um, behaved all that well with borders closed, with student numbers tight, and there's been um, a degree of churn in parts of the sector. So you've had all those variety of different roles and you've seen the sector from a lot of different uh, angles what's your response is it feasible to regulate uh, agents in Australia what about all the agents overseas sending students here what What do you think is that a practical uh, option
1: from a jurisdictional perspective it's obviously possible to regulate agents that are already here a lot of agents I don't know possibly all agents who are operating here have connections with overseas um, operations so you know, if you're being regulated, you might shift your operations back overseas to escape regulation. So practically speaking, is it worthwhile? I don't know. Um, I always find uh, it's easy to blame agents for poor behaviour. My view is that agents are an extension of what institutions will let them get away with. Um, and you might remember uh, the last time we had a significant challenge for this industry, about 10 years ago, when we had – significant concerns about uh, student safety particularly in melbourne um you know dodgy practices by particular providers the um knee-jerk reaction by government to make it harder to get visas offshore markets started to dry up the only market really left that anybody could um uh, work in was the onshore market and i was working at rmit at the time and institutions came into town and set up tents on the lawn outside the state library um, to recruit students directly opposite RMIT, which is, you know, perfectly fine. But it was just an indication to me that it's pretty cutthroat Um, and particularly when it gets tough, when the going gets tough. And those sorts of behaviours send messages um, and, you know, agents are just part of that ecosystem you can regulate all you like. Uh, there'll be ways in which those being regulated will get around the regulations if they need to. Um, a lot of agents sure, I don't think, will bat an eyelid at being regulated because most agents do the right thing. Most of the time, my experience, and I've had a long period of time working with agents, and there are some excellent agents out there, excellent people who are genuinely there to help students find study op- opportunities that suit them. Um, so yes, they can regulate agents if they like. They already regulate institutions pretty closely. Institutions, um, being regulated, pay pretty strict attention to what their agents are doing on their behalf. I'm now on the agent side of the business and I know that for a fact. So more regulation seems to be what we like in Australia in all sorts of aspects of life. Um, I don't think it necessarily helps to be perfectly honest, um, I think we can call that bad behaviour. There's plenty of instruments available to us to be able to manage the behaviour of institutions and agents. Um, I, I can't say that my regulation really makes much sense, if we're perfectly honest.
0: No, and I have to agree with you. I mean, I think we met at the time of that you were talking about, the last International yes. Student price. That's where, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly uh, right. it was a, a a really torrid time for the industry and it does strike me, it goes to the behaviour of the institutions who are receiving the students and I would I would have thought... A bit more scrutiny and data analysis on where student flows are going internally might help the existing regulators have a look at and enforce existing regulations and start to ask Mm. questions about particular institutions' practices, uh, and then perhaps think about the agents that they work with. So we've talked about you've worked in the sector for a while and it's, it's currently quite stressed, although even since, you know, we started talking about, you know, having this chat, uh, things look much more optimistic. Amazing what a couple of weeks will do. Um, as, I guess as lo- from an Australian perspective, that is, and as long as you're probably in uh, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide or Canberra, um, you can start to feel a little bit more positive, probably not so much WA and, and Queensland. <laughs> so... Uh, Okay, so there is some optimism. We are going to see students returning in in 2022 and the sector will start to rebuild. And I guess the timing of that's going to depend on a few factors. So I'm not asking you to use your crystal ball and look at next year, but instead look ahead. So you've got that international perspective of where students have been going, where borders have been open, et cetera. Tell tell us about, if you can, if, if we can... Click forward 2024, 2025, what's your sense of what the sector looks like then, particularly Australia, but, you know, what happens in Australia is impacted by what's happening in in competitor countries. What what do you think the sector looks
1: like? Well, 2022 is all about pipelines, Twenty three is about recovery, and 24, 25, I guess, is it, and... Who who could predict uh, whether or not that's going to happen? The demand is there. We've seen that platform. We work with institutions in the Northern Hemisphere, um, UK, Canada, US um, predominantly, and the interest from students is huge to go there. So the demand for uh, overseas education, for students to physically travel overseas uh, for their education, has not gone away, and the all of the characteristics that attracted students to Australia in the past will still be there. Quality education, lifestyle, value for money, you know, all, all of the things that have attracted students to Australia as fee-paying international students for 30-plus years have not disappeared. They've just been put on life support. Uh, they'll come back. fusions are going to have to go about their business over the next few years. Um, severe resource stress, um, fewer staff, smaller budgets, needing to think smarter, more offshore resources. Um, and those offshore resources have been probably uh, primarily you know recruitment marketing um, and quality assurance for applications but you might see more uh, offshoring of application processing for example those kinds of things so a shifting of resources so that the cost base reduces um, and doing things virtually so um, you know being in the company that i'm in at the moment and with the platform that we've got it's tailor-made um, for times in which travel is restricted uh, but I also think it's the way in which institutions are going to have to do a lot of their business in future anyway. The, the dilemma that institutions all have is it's, it's a people-to-people, person-to-person business, people buy from people in education. It's the biggest um, investment that many families will make, um, many individuals will make, uh, and there's all sorts of um, ways in which they want that choice validated. You know, you hand over the first cheque. You want to know that it's real, that it's going to give you value, um so how institutions um in destination countries maintain that personal link with their markets through their agents with families and with students will be the great challenge because that's been really i think the nub of the industry for many years it's the, it's the people industry um so i think that Virtual marketing, virtual equipment would augment and supplement, not replace a lot of those things, um, and there will be the resource implications um, over the next few years that will require institutions to do things differently anyway. Beyond 2024,
0: 2025, I have no idea. <laughs> I know. <I've>, I definitely <laughs> won't, won't hold you beyond that. So what you're saying is um, institutions are going to have to be a bit more creative to try and replicate some of what they used to do quite comfortably in the past. So it's going to require yes. some different thinking um, driven largely by efficiencies, Can you, which I think is is a really interesting point and one yes. I'll need to keep an eye on and, and have a think about. Can you tell us, I was, uh, in know, spent my life in conferences listening to clever people thinking, <laughs> uh, speaking Um So in a recent uh, discussion, there was um, an Australian government representative talking about uh, some perceptions that Australia's continuing closed borders, and okay, it's about to change, have added to worries that students might have about their safety in Australia, which at first hearing, I thought, oh, that's a bit of a long shot. But actually, the point was that... Uh, first we had the message last year about go home. Mm
1: -hmm. Then we've
0: kept people out and there's a view that having done that has made people wonder about how well they will be received when they come here. And if there is an anti sort of migrant, anti-outsider view, which I think it would be fair to say that's bubbled up in parts of the Australian community in the last 18 months or so, will you feel as an international student coming to Australia, will you feel welcome and therefore would your safety potentially be at risk if there is more racism, more unwelcomeness um, in mm. the community? Do, do you have any sense of that?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I know we we include in the international student barometer questions about um, safety and security uh, being made to feel welcome, those sorts of things. And Australia comes out really well. Australian institutions come out really well in those. You're you're talking really about in the future when borders open and, and the, the receiving population is worried about um, visitors bringing in, you know, I, I guess, um, viruses and different strains and those sorts of things. I, I'm not entirely sure. I think there's been a lot of social disruption in different parts of the world over the last couple of years. And so, and we've seen some of that recently in Australia with um, protests in Melbourne in particular over the last couple of weeks so there's always going to be that element but but there, international education different from 10 years ago um, I think is much more an accepted part of Australian society culture and business and the impact of the absence of students is very widely felt so I think that you would have enormous proportions of the population who would be very happy to welcome international students back because of all the things that they bring with them, not just the economic benefits, but um, you know, vibrancy to inner city areas, um, diversity in classrooms, uh, all sorts of postgraduate masters, masters by coursework programs that are viable because they're so popular with international students that enable then domestic students to take those courses otherwise they wouldn't run because universities couldn't afford to run them there's all sorts of benefits from them coming back um I'd, I'd be surprised if the atmosphere for international students coming up was any different to what it had been in the past uh there might be different flavors and there's it's it's always a risk going overseas i've sent my kids overseas on various things and you worry the whole time um, so it's never going to be possible to make it 100% safe and welcoming, but I have no reason to believe it would be any less welcoming or safe than it has been in the past.
0: Well, what a great note to end on, right? Positive <laughs> um, and, uh, and optimistic. And, That's me. Uh, well, <laughs> let's keep our fingers crossed. I mean, I, I think we, we do need to focus on, you know, institutions and and others involved in and around the sector on reinforcing the welcoming message but i love what uh, yeah. what you've had to say and um and drawing that experience together um stephen always a pleasure to chat thank you very much for your time and i'll be keeping an eye on Adventus.io. love a bit of ed tech and uh, watching <laughs> how you grow and scale in the in the years to come
1: thanks for having me claire